Hey, I'm Craig Finn. You're listening to That's How I Remember It. Our guest today is a great one, MC Taylor from the band His Golden Messenger. Mike Taylor, or MC Taylor, has been the constant member of the band through their many releases and heavy touring. I've seen this band play with many different lineups, and we get into that in our talk. The first record I connected with was 2014's Lateness of Dancers. I got pretty obsessed with that record. And as I started to learn more about the band, I unearthed the fact that Mike had been a member of the 90s West Coast hardcore band, Exignota. I was aware of Exignota and seen that they were part of the Heart Attack Evolution Records scene. I found that to be an interesting aspect of Hiss because, um, well, the music is so different. There's this even little cool film about Exignota made by the musician Jack Johnson. You can see it on YouTube if you like. I thought it was an especially interesting artifact and we discussed it a little bit here. Sometime after I became a fan of the band, um, my friend Josh Kaufman, who's produced a bunch of records for me and for the Hold Steady, Josh started playing in Hiss, so I went to see them at the Williamsburg Music Hall. And Josh introduced me to the band. We talked about this hardcore connection. I found MC Taylor to be super interesting and engaging that night. We've seen him play a bunch of times since, and I still find him amazing to talk to. He's thoughtful and wise and passionate. And we had a really good talk right here. Check it out. MC Taylor, His Golden Messenger, thank you for joining us here on That's How I Remember It. I start these all out the exact same. Do you consider yourself to have a good memory? Um, It depends. It depends what we're talking about. If we're talking about, you know, hardcore seven inches from 1994, then I have an exceptional memory. If it's, uh, if it's about like someone in my immediate family's birthday, then I have a terrible memory. How about like conversations, things like that? Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, my memory can tell me things. I don't know if it's there; it's accurate, but how do you think your memory affects your work? How do you think it shows up in your work? Mm, I think I'm I'm often working with invented memory, which you know is not necessarily completely fabricated, but it's my brain filling in gaps in what I'm remembering with things that are probably not exactly um, true to history, but are somehow true to my emotional experience, if that makes sense. Yeah, it, it's, I think so. Is it how you're feeling them or is it, or I mean, is it, is it in a sense to make the, the song or the story better or is it just the way filtered through your, the way you feel it? I mean, a little, a little bit of, a little bit of both. I think sometimes I'm remembering to write a song. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I'm just remembering to kind of like recenter my emotional, uh, you know, my like get my emotional bearings. I feel like sometimes that's part of what memory is doing for me is is kind of like orienting myself um, within my emotions because. I'm a very emotional person. <laughs> do you, <laughs> do you, how do like when you start a song, I mean, do you start at the top? Is it, do you go from the first line? I mean, I think when I start a song, I think I'm starting at the first line, yeah. but um, I, I suspect that more often than not now, what I think of as the first line when I sit down to write that song might not end up being the first line. 
Um, yeah. But but I will say that I think what I think of as the first line, whether it is actually the first line of the song or not, it often remains the thesis of the song. That makes right? sense. Yeah. So, How about... Does does memory? I mean, one thing people, a lot of people have said in these conversations is memory supplies details for them. And I know for myself, you know, if I need a car, if I'm thinking about putting a car name, an auto, an actual type in my song, it's the Uber that picked me up yesterday. You know, like like mm-hmm. like they're, they're, these are things that kind of you pull from real life. Does that does that happen to you? Do I mean do do you is are those details populated from your own experiences? Yeah, I mean. Again, like this, there's a there's some haze between like what is what is real in my memory and what I think happened, and if that makes sense. And mm-hmm. I and I don't even really interrogate it too deeply. So if I'm looking for some sort of scene or vignette for a song i'm going into my memory generally and i'm pulling out imagery and i'm just kind of like oh this is interesting okay yeah there's never a moment where i'm like but wait a second that is not actually that's not actually real. It's more just kind of like it happens to be what I find in in my brain when I'm looking for something in particular. Um, And, you know, whether it's, whether it's quote unquote true really like has no, I don't ever think about that part. And um, on the new record on Shinbone, you you mentioned sage and eucalyptus smells like home. Are there senses that are especially parts of your memory? And and because of that line, I wanted to ask about smell. Like, is that something that that um, tends to trigger memory for you? Yeah, I mean, smell is is a big one, but I also find smell to be kind of like the most enchanted of the sense of the senses because there you may you may I mean speaking for myself personally I may be kind of going through my day-to-day life for years and years and then all of a sudden I'll smell a particular smell and it like unlocks a door to a whole set of memories that I haven't thought about for forever and the only way I was able to access them is through that that smell. So I find smell to be oh, uh, such a mysterious, a mysterious sense, we'll say. I, um, you know, th- this comes up a lot and a lot of people have talked about smell and I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily personally relate to that one. I, light, light, the quality of light to me really like is something that I key in on the way, the way like, you know, like light in California looks different than the light in New York, et cetera. And oh man, there's a, just as a quick digression, there's an incredible story in the New Yorker from the early nineties about a native Californian Uh that has lived on the East coast for decades and they come back to California. And the thing that strikes them in such a profound way, it almost like brings this writer to his knees is the sense of light in California. 
I read it when I was a, a teenager, and I was kind of like, I, I am moved by this in a theoretical way, but like decades on. But for some reason, the story always stuck with me, and and I have gone back and read it uh, over the past couple of years, and it's it's, you know, it means something totally different to me now. It's it's pretty profound. Yeah, and, and you're you know you're from California, obviously. So that, but the light in California is something that, and I've never lived there, is recognizable to me. But you know, so it is when you travel and you go somewhere like Scandinavia, it's different. And that to me, there's something that I feel like I'm clued in on that more than I don't know smell or something like that. I wanted to ask about like, your first, if you know your first memory around music, like you know music when you were young. Mm. Was there music in your mm. house? Well, my dad uh, is, uh, he plays the guitar. Mm -hmm. He has a Martin D28 that he bought. He's the, he was the first owner. He bought it from McCabe's Guitar Shop in Long Beach, California, when they had a store in Long Beach as well. He, he bought it in 1964. And he still has that guitar. Um, to me, that's the gold standard of what an acoustic guitar is supposed to sound like. Um, it, I mean, it does sound amazing, but it's so bundled up with nostalgia and family mm -hmm. connections that it's kind of like I, I could never, I could never pick that apart. He played. He, he was a, a school teacher, but he played guitar around the house and sang all the time. Mm -hmm. And so, like from from when I was a, a really little kid, I. Um, I just have this, it's not even a specific memory, but just like this ongoing thread in my life of my dad playing guitar and singing, like especially on weekend mornings, mm -hmm. he would have his guitar out and he would be singing kind of just like old folk songs. He has like a, he had a repertoire that to me now seems very specific to the folk scene of Southern California. Like there's a lot of Kingston Trio, um, John Stewart, uh, James Taylor, you know that kind of that kind of thing. Sure. Scotch and soda, yeah. <laughs> like yeah, yeah. just um. So so there's that, and then I have memories of being in the back seat of, you know, like my family had a tan Datsun 510 station wagon. <laughs> and there's a lot of music that I remember hearing from the back seat. Like, I remember hearing Cream for the first time. And I don't know if my dad had a cassette of it. That I don't remember. But I remember going like, what is this? This is cool. Or Buffalo Springfield is another big one. Or sure. especially Joni Mitchell's Court and Spark. That was a really big. Uh, that was a really big record for my parents um, and, and for me. I mean, I like my first band before his Golden Messenger was called Court and Spark. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's funny. My 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 best friend growing up and I. We we have a term for we call station station wagon music, and it's like yeah the music you heard when you were in the back of the station wagon. And it's, uh, you know, for me, it was not as heavy as cream, but J Joni Mitchell would certainly uh, fit, the, yeah. fit the bill. Uh, Circle game is definitely station wagon music to me. Yeah. So like I, I, um, 
I have very specific memory. And again, like going back to what we were talking about, was there a specific moment where this memory came from or was it just this like sort of ditch of memory that got worn like a path that got worn because it happened so much, but driving, driving down Laguna Canyon highway, which was the road, this very rural, it's no longer rural whatsoever, but Mm. at the time, a very rural road that connected where I lived in Orange County, California to Laguna beach. We would go down, down there a lot. It was like a 25 minute drive. And, um, it was always court and spark playing as we drove, you know, underneath the eucalyptus trees and through the sage. I mean, like sage and eucalyptus, that whole, (laughs) that line from Shinbone is from those drives. Sure. Um, you know, that's what that road smelled like at that time. Like very, yeah, dusty. Was there a... Was there music later that was yours and yours alone? Like, was that was there first oh, music yeah. that you said like this is my music? And what was that? Tons, tons. Um, I was a I was a skateboarder from really early on, like mid mid eighties. I was, mm-hmm. you know, Southern California was like ground zero for skateboard mm-hmm. culture, and and with alongside skateboard culture, mainly through early skate videos was the music. Mm-hmm. And so I remember I would go to, um, there was a skate shop really close to my house called the Shaved Wave. They would they sold skateboard stuff and skateboard gear and shaved ice. This is <laughs> like two, the two things that they sold. And I think they also maybe sold some cassettes, but it didn't matter because um, two doors down, it's odd to think of these businesses existing in this this place where I grew up because it really was, I mean, it's such an anomaly that these places were there, but there was a, a record store just a couple doors down from the skate shop that, uh, um, God, I wish I could remember the name of it. It'll come to me at some point. They specialized in import imports. So through the skate videos, and this is like, I was probably like 10, 11, 12 years old. I started discovering stuff like, um, like TSOL, early TSOL, which mm-hmm. is a Southern California. They started out kind of like as a gothy punk band and kind of like went through, they were a hair metal band for a bit. They were, I don't know if you know this band, but. Oh um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, I, in fact, when I, I was just thinking about this, this to, you know, you just said gothy, but I, I was thinking about when I was a kid and I first heard music that was gothy it was at one, at that point i always heard it called death rock do you know uh-huh. that term and did that pre is that is that was that something that just preceded goth or is that something entirely different in your mind i mean in my mind not being an expert on yeah. the subject but in, but knowing a little bit about it i think of those two things death rock and goth as as different strains of music that are kind of similar and drawing on the same imagery and feelings, but are somehow slightly different. <laughs> like maybe death rock is like, you know, that, that TSOL era, or like if you ever knew that early iteration of the cult, the Southern death cult. Yeah. Like that, yeah, totally. that kind of stuff. Maybe a little more guitar driven. 
Maybe yeah, maybe right? more yeah, maybe more guitar driven. I I don't know. I only like kind of I only went down that road just a little, not too far. Mm-hmm. But I will say um so at the same time that I was discovering sort of punk rock and stuff that I over the years came to understand as music that was like pretty homebrew style. It was mm-hmm. like stuff that people within 20 miles of where I was living, I understand now we're like making this music. I was also getting really into like early rap and hip hop. And, mm-hmm. and I, I, I think of those two disparate types of music now as, as very connected, if only because at that time they existed on the margins of, of American musical culture. Um, and I think like even at a young age, I was drawn to drawn to to music that didn't appeal to everybody. I, I, I mean, I liked it because I liked it and musically I found it very compelling, but it was an added bonus that it was like these secret culture, musical cultures that I loved. So, you know, I was into like, early run DMC and the Beastie Boys, um, of course, but but also like the first Eric B and Rakim record, Stetsa Sonic, EPMD, early EPMD, mm-hmm. um, uh, early Gang Star records, um, you know, like, uh, I don't know. I, I went really deep on that stuff, like a, a little bit later, like Brand Nubian and um, early tribe called quest records and jungle brothers and you know what i mean like yeah yeah there was a lot there and and so like between punk rock because i i started to to learn more about that stuff and and just get into more and more music eventually eventually getting into like punk rock that was like i said being made right around me and being totally involved in that musical scene um, but between punk rock and hip hop, like that was my whole universe. Yeah. Um, like I was, I was dedicated to music in like a really deep way, starting at age like eleven or twelve, and that was it. I just had a memory when I was like recently about when I was, uh, I think in sixth grade, I went to on a family vacation to Florida, and we had a family friend with us, and there was a record store nearby where we were staying, and he went and got. Dead Kennedy's Fresh Fruit with Rob, Rob for Rotting Vegetables and I, the Grandmaster Flash album. And he brought him home and I, he brought him and he, sh- those are the two records he bought and he showed me and I said, what kind of record is that? And he said, like, that's hardcore. And he said, what, I said, what's this? He's like, it's rap. And I, so on the t- one day I learned what the, both those things were and they always kind of connect in my mind because it seemed like they're bubbling up at the same time, at least in my world. That's right. That's so right. I mean, they they are totally. I I know. I mean, n- now that you tell tell me that, like, I just know that those two musical worlds, like, despite the fact that I I don't know that there was a ton of like crossover in terms of personnel or anything, but they're just totally connected. I don't know. Like, they both seem like maybe a reaction to various things that were happening in American culture. Yeah. They're different reactions to the same conditions. And sorry, you know, to, to condi- at least the conditions of the time, you know, um, that's probably right. not the same for everyone. Um, that's right. But 
you know, hardcore is interesting to me. And I know you were a member of Ex Ignota, the band, which is, you know, part of a specific hardcore scene, Heart Attack Magazine, right. Ebullition Records. Yeah. It's a niche thing, but sometimes something I'm pretty aware of. Um, <laughs> how... <laughs> How did hardcore how did hardcore affect you? Like like what did you learn from it going forward? What did you take um that you know that you still that still part of you today? I mean, it like it made it made me. Mm-hmm. It just made me. The like sort of do it yourself ethos which is kind of like the uh seems to be like the 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 prime mover for like home improvement <laughs> network and stuff. Now it was profound. I mean, to, to understand that people, like I said, within 20 miles of me were forming their own bands, booking their own shows, playing shows in front of crowds of 20 to 50 people that could approach them after the, concert and talk to them mm-hmm. recording their own music pressing the, their own records creating the own their own record covers and then distributing them through whatever various grassroots distribution channels that they had invented that was so fucking inspiring to me that like it kind of gives me goosebumps to talk about even now so that was that was the most profound and like sort of earth shaking thing that I that I took from that moment in time that still like sort of animates a lot of what I do, which is like, if you want to get the shit done, then you can do it yourself. There's no like, there's no shame in that. And in fact, it may get you closer to what you envision the final, the final product, quote unquote, being than if you start then if you're waiting around for some kind of like pre-existing infrastructure to fit you in, I can't tell you, and I'm sure that you've seen this too because you come from the same kind of place. Like I can't tell you how much time I've seen wasted by great musicians waiting for a manager, mm-hmm. a booking agent, a record label. Yeah. Yeah. So when I when I made that first um even like as recently as the first what I think of as the first His Golden Messenger record Bad Debt which came out in like let's say 2011 or 12 I recorded that myself on a cassette player I pressed 200 copies on vinyl I made the covers myself and I sold them myself and when yeah. I sold when I sold all 200 of them and it seemed like there was some interest. I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to make 200 more. And that's how it started. And like, I, I kept that vibe going with Hiss until it was way too, and then it got way too, too busy and I couldn't do it anymore. And then it made sense to involve other people. And there were other people waiting to be like, yeah, let us help you. We have, we, but you know, like, I just, I don't know. So I really approached the music biz from like kind of the side and Mm -hmm. to see people like all in on this idea of like, 
I just got to wait to find a record label. I, I'm just always like, I hope that works, but I've not seen a lot of examples of that working. Hey, I'm Craig Finn. Here on That's How I Remember It, we often talk about music. So I wanted to mention DistroKid and their new app for iPhone and Android. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100% of their royalties and earnings. Over a million artists rely on DistroKid to get their music into Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. With this app, you can sign up and pay for a new DistroKid account or sign into an existing one. You can upload new releases. You can get notified when you've earned royalties, edit your account details, check your streaming stats, add lyrics and song credits, edit release metadata, and so much more. The DistroKid app is now available on iOS and Android. Go to the app or play store to download it. I I had I I would go even for a long time. I had like dis I didn't I I don't want maybe it is distrust of anyone who didn't come from some sort of hardcore background. I um, mean, yeah, and I've, I've <laughs> given that I've given that specifically up. But 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 I they have to get what you're saying or what we're saying. You know, they I, I they at least have to understand that that being able to do some part of it yourself or build up a solid foundation has to be part of it because it doesn't work. Otherwise they just take it away from you. That's right. And in fact, doing it myself for as long as I did really made me understand that made me truly understand what the commission is that I'm paying to managers, record labels, all that stuff, like it makes complete sense. So when I enter into a relationship in which in which a commission is being paid, I totally understand what I'm giving up in order to not have to take care of that stuff anymore. And I'm like, yeah. It, it, and, and for a person that's wired like me, I really need that knowledge in order to not get salty about it. <laughs> yeah. 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 And yeah. And it it's, there's a peace of mind there because you understand it and it's not, I, I don't know. That's what I feel like the anxiety and to me is the unknown. And that's so, right. you know, like to, to at least understand it, there's this, there's this thing. I mean, what, one of the things about the other thing about hardcore is like, you know, like sort of record collecting and I love sort of the artifacts of all that. And I was, uh, there's this film, um, about Exignota that's, uh, I saw on YouTube and it's, it was made by Jack Johnson. It's pretty amazing. And I'm wondering, you know, the film, right? Uh, and, oh, yeah. and I'm wondering, wondering, was that like myth making or, um, was that what was happening with the band? I mean, it was, it was both, but I think that we were aware that, um, meaning all of us in the band and Jack were aware that like we're we have an opportunity to invent here yeah. like why not why not take advantage of it nobody nobody's telling us this has to be the truth <laughs> right we can we can say whatever we want here and like we were all just like stoned punk kids yeah we were in the process of of myth making and you got to remember that Exignota, I mean, this is like getting into some minutia, so I won't like, I won't dwell too long on it, but Exignota was like really at that moment in time, the one sort of weed smoking, 
drug experimenting bands among a, a very straight edge landscape. So we were already rubbing people, not the wrong way, but oddly. <laughs> so we really, we really lean, you know, like Ebullition Records was, I don't know what they became, but I remember when Kent McClard, the owner of Ebullition, sort of put it out on the wire that Ex Ignoto was going to be making records for Ebullition. People were like, what? What? Those guys? <laughs> no, no, that's not, they can't do that. <laughs> so... You know, our reaction to that kind of attitude was just to fuck with people even more. And and that film that film is sort of part of that. It the, the film really reminded me the power of like putting down sort of documents, especially in this di digital age and he obviously lives as a digital um thing on YouTube, but I just recently uh, there was an Instagram account started by this band um, Outcry that I grew that grew up in my my part of the world and uh, it got me excited. I went to pull out their record and when I pulled out their record, it said produced by. There's this guy that produced it. His name's Tom Herbers, and mm -hmm. they and it's in big letters produced by Tom Herber. They literally got his name. They spelled it wrong. Yeah. And I was like, well, God, God bless this. I love this. Like, there's this <laughs> thing that happened in 1980. Five, I think. And they, you know, in big letters, they're probably laying out, you know, probably someone's laying out their first or second record or whatever. Right. And they check, and there's just like, I mean, I'm maybe Tom himself wasn't that psyched about a misspelling, but in 2023, I was like, awesome. You know, yeah, and, yeah. and it made me, it made me think like, thank God they made this record. Like it really, yeah. and you yeah. know, do you, are you, and, and that leads me to the question, are, did you do an academic thing are you like have a folklore music um academic background uh well i have a graduate degree in folklore yeah um, well that's yeah so i guess yes although uh i feel so so disconnected to that universe at this point i'm 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 i'm, I'm hesitant to to talk about it just because I moved to North Carolina. My wife and I moved to North Carolina in 2007. I entered immediately into the grad program. Um, you know, the grad graduate program was a conven convenient way for us to justify uprooting our lives. We just mm -hmm. knew at that moment in time that we needed to make a profound change. We'd been living in San Francisco. We're kind of mm -hmm. like whatever moves we were making were lateral moves at best, you know? Yeah. So we were just like, listen, we didn't have kids then. Let's just make a change. Let's go somewhere we know nothing about. I was interested in in <laughs> I was interested in folklore as I understood it then. I was already like doing taking some very tiny steps into like connecting with musicians that had been making music for a long time. So like I booked Michael Hurley's first show in San Francisco for, I don't know how long it had been, but that was like right at, at a moment, it's probably like 2004 or five, right in a moment in time where all of the heads around Northern California were discovering his music. I was like, I'm going to find him mm -hmm. and put on a show. And, um, it was a, it was a big success. That was where he met, uh, Andy Kabik, Avetiver, and Devendra, and all those guys, and they 
ended up having a, a relationship with him after that. But I was doing kind of some work like that. And that in my head was kind of, I don't think of that as being folklore work now. <laughs> right. I think of that as being kind of like fanboy work, but, <laughs> but, um, but at the time, you know, I was kind of like, well, maybe there's, I don't, I'm just treading water here. My music wasn't really, you know, I was making records and stuff, but they just weren't, nothing was happening with them. Mm -hmm. And I just thought like, I need like a restart. I'm going to go to grad school. (laughs) Well, the folklore and even the music, even like, you know, bringing Michael Hurley to do that show is is part of passing down tradition in some way yeah you know oh yeah and, yeah and it all yeah, it's I mean, all it's the hardcore seven inch too it's you know it's it's documents it's the film it's it all makes sense to me um yeah but. yeah yeah and it was also there was certainly an attitude of doing doing it myself like doing you know stuff with hurley it was just like i mean he's not gonna play around i really want to see this dude play he's not gonna play around here unless someone gets in touch with him like fuck i'll i'll get in touch with him yeah, I mean, sometimes that's that's what it takes. But I want to talk about the new record. Um, I found a quote from you. It made a lot of sense to me, and it was from Songwriters on Process. And you said, part of my mission with his has been to make emotionally complex music where you play it for someone they can't quite tell whether it's happy or sad, and that's the core of my music, using it as a mirror for what my life feels like because my life is both happy and sad, usually at the same time. Now, the new record's called Jump for Joy, and you know this concept of joy, it seems like something at the, you know, I guess at the heart of what we're trying to get at musical performance connection to the audience. It feels like, it feels to me like you interrogate joy a little more with this record. Is that, is that intentional? Is, would you agree for one? Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, you know, joy, of course, being different from, I think of joy as like different than straight up happiness. Mm-hmm. I think that joy is, I don't know. Joy is to happiness as maybe like wisdom is to knowledge or something like that. Like it's uh, <laughs> I'm making I'm kind of taking a huge leap. I mean, I I feel like like uh, joy is something that um is is um you spend enough time around it and you start to maybe like take on the hue of joy, not necessarily meaning that you're always joyful, but that, that can be a, that can be like a, a, a home place that you go back to. Um, I mean this, this like notion of joy, the foregrounding of it, is maybe kind of new for me. There were like many years when I feel like I was kind of in the wilderness, for sure. Do you do you remember in the, it must have been around Paul's Boutique, but the Beastie Boys had a press conference where they announced they were going positive. Do you remember, do you no, remember this? No, but it's it pretty feels amazing. A little, feels a little bit like Jump for Joy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can look it up. It's, it's It was pretty great. And they were kind of, they actually, it was kind of in the sense that they were denouncing how they talked about women on some of the earlier records. I definitely, I definitely remember that. Yeah, they actually did an actual press conference, and it was yeah. very brilliant. And, uh, but uh, you know, it reminded me. But I mean, like, you know, it was this a, a personal thing, or it, or is it a global thing? I mean, are, are you? Is obviously the news is 
always messed up, but it, it can always feel that way no matter. Um, but 2020, you know, the last few years, maybe especially, is it that it, it was it an answer to that? Or is it more of a personal, like I am going to go here. I mean, I, I think that, I think that it always will be from like a personal and intimate place for me. And if that is extrapolated outwards, then, then cool. I mean, I think, I think that, I think that in some ways it can be, but I'm never, I'm never trying to talk big, you know, I'm never trying to talk big. I'm trying to talk tiny. I'm trying to like go as small as I can in terms of like, who my audience is, which is generally just me. <laughs> I'm trying to like, I'm trying to to talk to like do some straight talk to myself and see how believable I can make it to myself. It's very hard to lie to myself. Um, certainly in songs, which I feel like, you know, if there is, if there's one goal that I have is like the songs, I want them to be emotionally genuine feeling to me to me however anyone else takes them is that's like a whole other stage of of the life of the song but um i i i you know what i'm saying um i mean i i think so i think the joy this like meditation on joy was for me was for me because I I felt like especially after you know all the shit that went down from like 2020 to 2022 or whatever Donald Trump and just all this shit that's just been like fucking shoveled all over us for so long and then like you start to realize like I mean there are people in this in this there are people within 10 miles of me who've been having shit shoveled on them for fucking 40 years mm -hmm. it's like so how 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 are you gonna like how are you gonna deal with that how are you gonna like internalize that and i feel like for the longest time i would ingest that type of suffering and i would stew I would stew on it and it would kind of like eat me. And I think I found that not only was that affecting my day-to-day -day life, I mean, like I, I, I've always been like prone to depression, but certainly over the past like five years, it, I mean, like the like cosmos fucking cranked the dials and you know, I was in I was in that kind of place when I made Quietly Blowing It, which a lot of that was the last proper hiss record. I know a lot of people really like that record, and I have a huge amount of affection for that record, and we play songs from it every every show. Mm -hmm. But that was a hard record to make, and um, I just felt like I can't I can't be making records like this. I can't be creating songs from this place. This is like too much. One one of the things in the, I read in prep that was interesting is we were, you were talking about wonder um, and about you know possibly missing that that part of life and uh -huh. it seems like that's you know you say in um the more you wonder the less you know on the record mm. and that that's mm -hmm. you know seems is that is is recapturing that kind of sense of wonder part of the part of going towards joy or part of maybe I don't know totally uh, I think it's just you know just 
Yeah, I think like part of the DNA of joy is like is is just the mystery and letting the mystery be, and like it feels like we we live in a very anti mystery <laughs> time. Yeah, you know what I mean because if you're uncomfortable with mystery, you can dispel it instantly, and that type of thinking feels like it has infiltrated everything right so like when you and i finish a record and we're talking to the publicists what's one of the first thing the publicists ask for is a track by track breakdown can you give us a little what is each song about um mm -hmm. and like it never would have occurred to me as a kid falling in love with music to want the artist to tell me what every song was about it would it, it wasn't like it wasn't even like i wish i had this but there's no way i'm gonna get it it was like literally that never crossed my mind there's a lot of records that i was really into when i was a kid that i thought they were talking in some sort of code right and and what a bunch of those were when I when the whole study started to happen, we started to go to the UK. I realized it was British bands using British slang that right. I didn't know what it meant. But I was like, I thought it was mystical, you know. And dude, I um, mean, this, the same thing with early hip hop. I was yeah. like, think listening to it now. I'm like, I mean, I was just like a, I was just like a little white kid from Southern California. I don't understand. I didn't understand what they were saying because like this was not my life. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah, it, and 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 you know now of course you just look up. Uh, what does that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean? You right. know, and um, and you know, uh, you don't want to be all. I don't like to be all Grandpa eighties about it, but you know there is some. There is the technology that we keep creating does take some of that out of um, out of our lives. Did you did you read that that there was like and you may have mentioned Anais Mitchell in, in the thing I was reading, but she wrote an essay about kind of like what do you miss, you know? And well, that's where that's where the that's where the, that came from is is she was asking friends like what do you miss about what when we were, we're all kind of the same age, right? Like me, yeah. you, Anais. Yeah. Um, what do you miss about when you were a kid that kind of doesn't seem to exist anymore? And I remember just thinking like the wondering, I miss the wondering. I miss the wondering. And, and like, so that's, that's exactly where that, where that song title came from. It's just her asking people like, what do you miss? You know, I mean, this this, the song, the song went in a different kind of way, but um, yeah, that came, that song came from that. It, it's really great. She talks about in that, the, the thing that in that essay she talks about is taking a bus trip and, and sort of missing the dates. So going from like Vermont to Texas and, and missing right. the folk festival she was going to because she had the dates wrong. And it's like, that just is something, I mean, I'm sure that was a bummer, but also it's just a beautiful story now, you know? I mean, like, I, so I have a story that's like that, which is um, Ex Ignota was on our first huge tour. We we had been out for six weeks, probably. Mm -hmm. Six people in a cargo van with mm -hmm. one bench seat and a, and a, um, and a, like a loft. It was like the greatest tour ever. It still stands as like the best 
the most incredible <laughs> tour I ever did. Actually, so much imagery on Jump for Joy. Yeah. The tangerine, tangerine moon over Texas, ripe enough to feel it dripping, dripping all yeah. that stuff. Or like, if you want to get up, get up. If you want to make sound check, and if we want to get gas, we got to pool our money. All that's all this imagery and jump for joy is all from that specific six weeks. Um, last show of the tour, we were playing at Epicenter in San Francisco, mm -hmm. which was a punk rock record store. You may mm -hmm. remember this place. Yeah. It was on it was on Valencia and Sixteenth. I later played there many times with other bands. We were so excited to to play the show. It was the last, it was kind of like, it wasn't our hometown, but it felt like a homecoming. And the night before, the day before we were in, we were on some beach in, in Oregon, or maybe, maybe very Northern California. We were all like juiced to, to get back and, you know, like the um, returning conquerors. <laughs> and we get to Epicenter. There's no one there except for like, a couple pissed off employees and we're like, was there, what's up with the show? And they're like, the show was last night. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't have yeah. cell phones. We didn't have computers. We had a dialer. We could have used our dialer to call on the payphone, but yeah. it didn't occur to us. We just missed it. The dialer, the dialer is a is a is a technology that has fueled a lot of those type of tours that you know kids today don't don't. I mean, I, I just I will say that anytime anyone brings up a dialer, immediately I'm like, yeah, you're legit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was that was um, that those in those in the, like the calling cards that um, yeah. Um, his has changed um, members a lot, and and there's yep. this part um, the record in the record where you say like you know it's in, in I saw the new day in the world. You say you know one trick pony changes one four five rearrange it turn me into glue. Now it talks about music really, and you know talks me to me. You know you started this band yourself, and now you have a band. But that I've seen it in many many different um, formations. <laughs> uh, but that to me that says you have trust in these people. Like you're getting on stage and and there's a looseness, but a a trust and a um uh, a musicality. Um, is that is that a, is that by design? Is that exciting or is that like a necessity thing? Like, oh, that guy can't do the tour. Um, I think that um, like changing members in his golden messenger. This seems like this seems like the cosmos is his biggest test for Mike is, <laughs> you know what I mean? Because I find changing band members to be profoundly disorienting and anxiety inducing, but it's just for the longest time is just how I had to function because, um, now luckily it's, there's, there's, you know, there's, so there's always been a pool of like, I don't know, 10, 15 people in the world that sort of know his golden messenger music. It's like, yeah. you know, um, my band now, JT Bates, Josh Kaufman, Ryan Gustafson, mm -hmm. Scott Hirsch, you know, there's a circle of people, um, um, Matt McCon. Mm -hmm. I, I haven't even named any of the people that are actually in the band, but it's kind of like if one guy can't do it, then 
I asked the the next. Um, I I I do have trust that they can do it, and I have trust that this this pool of people understands the foundation of the music, like what I'm asking. Um, I don't prefer to change band members. It's more just out of necessity. So like as soon as I got to a place where I could like keep a keep a a group of people together, I, I have really pushed towards that. Partially because I love the like ridiculous romance of a band. Yeah. I mean um, I the, this is not it's not a democracy by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm a nice band leader. <laughs> I as an audience member, I you know, and I've been I've been Hold Steady is 20 years old this year, and we've had some lineup changes, but not many. Um, but I always see it when I've been an audience member at his show and it's a new lineup, which um is that it's it's like I, I kind of experience it as his badass. Like this is his gold messenger. And it, yeah. it this is, and the players are always, you know, at a level that um, brings something new to it, but it familiar as well. So I would just say as an audience member, I'm not like, uh, you know, like, like I'm, I'm almost like thrilled by it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm sorry to say, I'm going to keep that from happening as much as I possibly can. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I I mean I I as a, as a as a guy in a band, I absolutely understand the flip side as well. There's yeah, there's a yeah. lot of stresses on that. Um one more question and I it's just, I, this is the one I've been asking everyone at the end of these um it's about hometowns. I I recently was back in my own hometown in Minneapolis and I and I I, I had this experience where I got lost. I I tried to do a couple shortcuts, you know, and I was yeah. lost in it. I just realized that at 23 years away my relationship has changed. Physically and um, and emotionally too. Um, both, you know, some things I find beautiful. Um, sometimes some things have changed on me in a ways I haven't liked. But I'm wondering about. Um, you, you, I, I guess I'd ask about your own hometown, which is is that Galita, California? Is that? Is no, it? I'm from I'm from Irvine, Irvine, Irvine. California. Okay, yeah. Irvine is and and so how 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 do you feel after all the travels after moving? uh does it does it do your travels to make it love you like it make you more fond make you more confused do you have can you describe in any way your relationship with your hometown now yeah i mean my my relationship with my hometown feels as com complex as it was when i was 16 or 17 i left irvine when i was 17 and really never lived there again my parents still live there in the same house that i grew up in um and I love going there for them, but I feel um, partially, I think I'm probably not giving Irvine a fair shake because I think that it's, um, it's, is very cultural, di culturally diverse. Certainly there are no black people there, but, uh, but it is a culturally diverse place with its own set of traditions, right? When I was a kid, for whatever reason, I craved quote unquote tradition mm -hmm. and I went looking for it. And, and that's actually what led me here. It's what led me to like incorporate the types of music that I have in, in His Golden Messenger. And it's, it's what led me to 
really like this lifelong meditation on um on 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 authenticity which i think is not a real thing right mm-hmm. i don't right. think that authenticity is a real thing there's no such thing it's something that uh that the gatekeepers stick on after but growing up where i did from a really young age it really made me think about what is real what feels real what feels deep-rooted and long-lasting and what doesn't feel that way. A lot of Orange County, California doesn't feel, it feels transitory. It feels like tear that down, build a new version of it. Tear that down, build a new version of it. So that's my, that's part of my relationship to my hometown. But, you know, the other relationship is the sage and eucalyptus and the, the Calif- Southern California light and all of the incredible Southern California music that came from that place in L.A., which is its own thing. So my relationship to my hometown is confused. The, the first line on the new album is something like, this, there are no songs that are simple, right? Yeah. No such thing as a simple song. <laughs> No such thing as a simple song, indeed. Nothing simple. That's great stuff. Huge thanks to MC Taylor for joining us here on That's How I Remember It. I really love talking to him. He's got such a cool depth to him. It's a pleasure to hear his thoughts on all this stuff. Now, one interesting thing. When we were talking about artifacts, I mentioned the Outcry LP, um, a Minneapolis hardcore band that was important in my youth. And I brought up their record as sort of a power of artifacts and how even if they're imperfect, they're so important in helping us mark time. Um, so I've been listening to that Outcry record a lot this year. Um, when we recorded this episode, it was a little while back, and today on my to-do list was to get the intro and outro recorded, to post this episode in a day or two from now. This morning, I woke up to sad news. Uh, Jack Heidenreich, the singer of Outcry, passed away. It's really sad. His band was, I believe, to be an important entry point in the hardcore for a lot of people my age in the Twin Cities. He was just a little older than me that I never really knew him back in the day. But I'd actually been conversing with him this year through socials, and I found him to be really, really warm and funny and super cool. So, RIP Jack. Um, condolences to all the people who knew him and loved him. Thank you for the music and the shows. We'll remember you. That's what this show's about memory. Huge thanks to all of you for listening this far. It means a ton to me. We still got some amazing guests coming up on the rest of season three. Also, remember, we have a live podcast taping at the Moth Club in London, England, March 2nd. It's around my solo tour of England and Ireland. Check out craigfin.net for details. And please keep listening. Please subscribe if you can. That helps out. Thank you for joining me. I'm Craig Finn, and that's how I remember it.